few things happened to me this past week uh, that made me realize I am immensely grateful for my eyesight. Okay, something that we don't think about all the time, something we might think, take for granted. Uh, one uh, thing this, this week is I was just walking out here in the upper parking lot outside of church in the afternoons, as I often do when I need to get refreshed a little bit. And I just saw the, the gorgeous colors of the trees on the hill there. And I thought, wow, that's not only beautiful, but how wonderful it is just to be able to have vision. Um, I know, you know not everyone has that gift, and uh, I might not even have that gift to the same extent as I move on and get older in life as I'm realizing I'm, I'm wearing progressive lenses now, which help me see things close up as well as far away. Uh, but I was just really thankful for my sight. And then a second event happened this week made me think about my eyesight. I, was, I think I was wrestling with my kids, and one of them bumped my eyeglasses. And I thought, man, I am so dependent on these glasses like you don't even know. Uh, I've worn them since I was about 18 years old. And um, I do a lot of reading. I would, I'd be totally helpless uh, without my glasses for that. And uh, could I drive without my glasses? You wouldn't want me on the road. I'd do it in a life or death situation, but uh, it's, it's, I'm pretty helpless out there. And my family will tell you, if I'm ever without my glasses, uh, I'm pretty useless uh, without them. And they just make fun of me. Uh, but I need my glasses to do normal life, so I'm thankful for my glasses too. But uh, I think that the same thing is probably true for most of us, even if you don't wear glasses, even if you don't wear contacts, uh, probably a lot of your daily life is much more dependent upon your having clear vision uh, than you think about. Maybe you don't think about it much at all. And if you come across times when maybe for a moment or a few minutes uh, that you don't have clear vision or you can't see well, uh, you might start to panic a little bit because you know that having poor vision can lead to some bad consequences. Uh, I learned this at the age of 17 in calculus class. Uh, up to that point, I had been a straight-A student in math. Math just always came easy for me. Algebra, trig, pre, pre-calculus, no problem. Then I get to my senior year. Uh, the wrestling coach was the uh, calculus teacher, and he, he was uh, a man of order, and so he had to sit alphabetically, winding up and down the rows. And just where my name fell, I was in the very back row. And uh, all of a sudden, what had been easy for me suddenly became very challenging, and um, I started to get really bad grades in calculus. Good news is I got really good at drawing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and uh, writing some very dark and comical poetry. I wasn't saved back then, uh, and making some funny comments, but uh, not a lot of math was going on there. It took me about a half a year to realize that uh, my vision was feeding into that quite a lot, so I, I went and I got my glasses, um, in the next semester, my grade went up to a whopping like C plus, B minus. It wasn't great, but, but uh, better than a D for sure. Uh, but poor vision can lead to bad consequences. Uh, my wife, Holly, experienced this this past week. Uh, when she was driving, uh, she was going from Fairbanks to North Pole. Many of you drive that all the time. It was raining out. Uh, it was also toward evening, so not the great, greatest visibility to begin with. And... Um, this has been an intermittent problem with her car. All of a sudden, the, not just the front windshield fogged up, but the side windows and the back as well. I talked to someone between services who says, I know what might be causing your problem, so I'll have that looked at there. But basically, her vision was just suddenly cut off there on that road, and she had to slow down to about 40 miles per hour. If you drive that road, you know that no one drives that road at 40 miles per hour. That's a 70 zone, right? And uh, she said, I considered pulling over 
but it was even a little too dangerous to do because she just couldn't see. She's like rubbing the windshield as she's trying to just stay in the lane and get to North Pole. Poor vision, muddled eyesight can lead to some dangerous and terrible consequences. And I would say the same thing is true when it comes to what I'll call our spiritual eyesight, our spiritual eyesight. I'm coining a phrase a little bit here, but I believe that the concept is all throughout Scripture. It's, uh, it's in Jeremiah 5, it's Ezekiel 12, it's actually a few places in Isaiah, but it's all these places that God talks about his people having eyes to see, but not seeing. It's kind of a recurring kind of thing in Scripture. And so by spiritual eyesight, I don't mean our physical eyesight by which we figure out what's real in the physical world around us, like, hey, there's a moose in the road. I should swerve out of the way. But I mean our spiritual eyesight by which we figure out how to rightly interpret the world around us from God's perspective, what's true, what's right, to see things as God sees things. So I would say that our spiritual eyesight has more to do with things like understanding what's right and wrong, our morality. But spiritual eyesight also has to do with understanding things like our purpose and our priorities. What choices should we make in life? What ought we to be living for? So, if you will, I could say that there might sometimes be a spiritual moose in the road that we would do well to avoid. For example, that spiritual moose might be oh, here's something that I could take for myself even though it doesn't belong to me. It's stealing. Or you could say I could have an affair with my coworker, or so on. If we don't have God's way of seeing these things, if, if we don't see those opportunities for the dangers they really are, we could be setting ourselves up for a world of hurt. And seeing clearly in the things that matter to God, it's not just about avoiding bad stuff, but it's also about not missing out on God's very best. Uh, I'll give you an example here. Uh, we had, uh, I say jokingly, 21 kids signed up for Cubbies. Cubbies are our three and four-year-olds in Awana. Uh, I found out between services it's now up to 25. They intended to cut off at 21. So 25 kids, three and four years old, lots of energy. What do you see when you look out over a room of 25 Cubbies? 25 runny noses? 25 kids that are so in tune that they all have to go potty at the same time. It's like the potty avalanche of cubbies, right? Do you see something to avoid and run from? Or might you see an opportunity to shape these kids' lives for the better in a way that could impact their eternity? We are looking for more cubbies helpers, by the way. Um, but this answer might depend on how clearly you're seeing things with your spiritual eyesight. Our spiritual eyesight, our way of rightly interpreting the world around us from God's perspective is important. So we avoid the bad, and so we don't miss out on the very best. So the question I want us to focus on this morning is, well, how do you improve your spiritual eyesight? Or to put it another way, how do you get better at seeing people, choices, and all the stuff of life in a way that more closely lines up with how God sees these things. And I will give one caveat up front here. Uh, we are wholly dependent upon God for our spiritual eyesight. Without God's action, without his intervention and help, without the Holy Spirit, we would be utterly helpless and truly spiritually blind. And there's nothing we can do about it on our own. It's not like you can just 
pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and say, I'm going to choose to see things exactly how God sees things. We need his help. But there's a back half to this caveat here. Even though we're dependent upon God uh, to give us the ability to see things clearly from his perspective, I believe that God provides the means to reach his ends. And in the two passages we're going to focus on today, I believe that God is laying out a means for those of us who already follow Christ to respond to him and to grow in greater clarity in our spiritual eyesight. Because you might have noticed uh, when you first became a Christian, you probably just didn't get like struck by lightning bolts and get this download instantly of perfect understanding of God and his purposes. Uh, sure, you knew enough uh, to recognize who Jesus is, that he died for your sins and rose again for the dead. But if you're like me, from that starting point as a Christian, you still needed to grow and you still needed to have your uh, vision made more clear to see like God sees things. And likely, uh, if you've been walking with God for a few years, uh, hopefully he's been working on your heart and my heart uh, and our spiritual eyesight over the years slowly. But I would say this, uh, people do have a part to play too. The author of Hebrews writes about this role for people uh, when he mentions in uh, Hebrews 5.14, you don't need to turn there, just listen, when he says, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And I don't think that the author there is thinking that uh, these Hebrews don't need God's help, but he's saying that they have developed this as they've walked with God and learned to train themselves. So our spiritual eyesight, it's only enabled by God, and yet he provides a means for us to grow in perception of his plans, purpose, and will. And though, so there's some responsibility for us here too. So let's look at how we... Uh, under the grace and enabling of God, can improve our spiritual eyesight. Uh, first passage we're going to be in here, actually both of them are going to come from Mark's Gospel. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. 8.22 is where we're going to be. Mark 8.22. Um, and uh, for those of you who've been with us for a few months, you might be saying to yourself, hey, wait a minute. We just did a whole series on Mark like the right before Philippians here. Why are we going back to Mark? Well, I've got good news for you. We're going to hit two short stories that we passed over in the first time that we read through Mark's gospel as a church. And I'm actually glad that we skipped uh, both of these particular very short stories here because I believe that the way that Mark wrote his gospel, that these two stories were included because they were meant to be read in light of one another. They're related. They're connected. Both uh, the two stories we're going to look at have to do with Jesus healing a blind person. So here's our connection to spiritual eyesight, blindness. In both of these uh, two stories here, um, bookend the middle section of Mark's narrative that some sometimes referred to as the way portion of Mark's gospel. Okay, So this middle portion, it's like chapters 8 through 10 of Mark's gospel, uh, is known as the way. Uh, one, because the word the way, or in Greek, the road, uh, is repeated five times throughout. It's also the way because it's kind of a short bridge section between the early eight chapters of Mark, which is all Jesus' ministry up north in, in Galilee. Then he goes on a road trip with his disciples. I like calling it the road trip. And then he arrives in Jerusalem, and it's kind of the, the big final showdown in Jerusalem. So um, repeated five times, bridge section, it's also called the way 
Because the focus of this road trip with his disciples is Jesus teaching them the way to walk with him. So it's kind of a metaphor um, for discipleship. Um, But these two miracles we're going to look at, they bookend this middle section perfectly, chapters 8 to 10. And they're going to give us a clue is how to understand the purpose of this road trip of Jesus with his disciples. Um, I will say this as far as what we're going to do today, because uh, we're going to look at these two bookend stories and summarize what's in between. We're going to do a lot of Bible reading up front and then come back to this question of how do you improve your spiritual eyesight. So you got to wait to the end here, okay? Uh, Let's open up to 8.22 in Mark's Gospel. Short little story here. First bookend. Mark 8.22, they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Okay, that's, that's it. That's the first short story there, and it kind of cuts scenes from there. Scenes starts out like a pretty basic healing story with Jesus, but then it takes a turn, and if we're honest, I think it gets a little bit odd here, right? Uh, it really focuses on Jesus' method uh, as he heals this guy. We, get, we find out that he leads the guy outside the village. We find out, kind of gross, he spits on the man's eyes. And then here's the kicker of uh, this story. The miracle doesn't seem so effective at first. I mean, it basically goes through these two phases. First phase, Jesus says, well, hey, uh, do you see anything? He says, well, I see people, but they look like trees. And so there's the second round of healing. He touches him again. And then the guy sees completely and then ends pretty typically in Mark with don't go in the village. Pretty standard way that a miracle story will happen in Mark. But then the scene totally switches without any further explanation. And we're left with questions. Well, why did it take two stages here? What's going on here? We don't know anything about this guy and it's just a weird little story. I mean, I wonder, have you ever come across this passage in your Bible reading and said to yourself, well, hey, what do I do with this? This is just a little oddball here. Uh, And I would say, what might you conclude if you were reading this in your Bible study and you read just that paragraph and nothing else, none of the rest of Mark's gospel? I mean, would you conclude that, hmm, maybe Jesus wasn't good at healing people all the time. Maybe he wasn't that powerful. Maybe Mark hadn't heard of a lot of miracle stories of Jesus and he was just kind of shoving this one in here as filler because he didn't have anything else to say, even though it's a little unimpressive. Well, I would say, no, if you read Mark's gospel from beginning to end, uh, it's quite a different story. Uh, You'd know the incredibly high place that Mark puts on Jesus and his power. Uh, The gospel gospel starts and ends with these parallel statements as surely this is the son of God or he's the son of God. Uh, Early on, the disciples say about Jesus, who is this that even commands the waves and water? Uh, Early on in these first eight chapters of Mark, there's this like cycle of miracles where Jesus casts out demons, heals the sick, does nature miracles. And then a second one that copies those first ones, but ups the ante and blows the roof off. So you would know that there is no shortfall in Mark's estimation as to Jesus 
his place, and his power. But then we start scratching our heads because we, we say, well, this little paragraph by itself, it's a little confusing, maybe even a little embarrassing. I mean, if you were writing a gospel about Jesus in his ministry, would you include this? He's the only one who does. It's not in Matthew, not in Luke, not in John. It's a little bit of an enigma. But here's the thing. Like I said earlier, I don't think Mark intended for this story to be read in isolation. I believe he purposely put it here, right at this kind of dividing line between block one and Galilee, road trip, Jerusalem, those three parts. He put it purposely right there so that we would read it in light of this other blindness healing miracle at the back, or the, the next scene there. And uh, if these bookends are purposeful, as I think they are, they should help us to understand this road trip going on in between with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, so I'm just going to give you a quick aside here uh, on some keys to reading your Bible well. Uh, the, those of you guys who come to my men's uh, Bible study on Thursday, I always say to look for two things. So there's more than two things, but two things we, we focus on are structure, how is a passage built, or in this case, how is the Gospel of Mark built, and prominence, where is our attention drawn in Scripture. So we've already talked about the structure of Mark a little bit, three blocks, right here, right here, right here. But prominence, okay? Prominence is just whatever gets your attention. You've probably heard Pastor Eric say many times, repetition in Scripture is the, the volume knob, right? The volume knob. It's saying, pay attention to this bit here that gets repeated. That's right, but repetition's not the only volume knob in Scripture. You can also have a lot of uh, prominence in Scripture if you get a lot of details about a situation, a person, uh, a place, that kind of thing. You can get prominence through a direct quote of somebody, especially if there's someone in authority or power. You can get prominence through seeing Old Testament quotes referenced. And in this case, with this story, you can see prominence just by its mere inclusion in the story. And by that, what I'm saying is, is we should take note of something just by the mere fact that in this case, Mark thought it was necessary to tell his story. Again, Thursday mornings with the guys, I often say, well, hey, why was verse 37 in this story even included? You could tell the story perfectly without verse 37. What does this detail add here? So just by the fact that something's included should make us pay attention. I'm not saying let it be the tail that wags the dog, but we should at least take note of it. And the bottom line, what I'm trying to get across here is this weird little story that we can often easily overlook has some meaning to it. But we need to read a little bit more broadly in the whole of Mark's gospel if we're going to understand it. So uh, that's your side thing. encourage you to read your scripture broadly. Don't just focus on a verse or a paragraph because we can sometimes miss it if we're so much down here that we don't get the whole. So if you're the kind who likes to meditate and focus on a smaller portion, great. But maybe add to that just some broader reading so that you can kind of catch patterns that happen over a larger period. So that's no extra charge for that Bible teaching right there. Bonus for you guys. Okay, back, back to the Mark here. Okay, first bookend story, the guy who sees things like trees. Let's look at the second story uh, of blindness being healed. This is in Mark 10, verse 46. Second bookend story, 1046. And this is a story you guys probably know a lot better than the first one. It's Blind Bartimaeus, right? That's a much beloved story. Not so scandalous as the first one doesn't leave a scratch in our heads. We like this one. This is what Mark writes in 1046. Again, inside of the, the road trip. 
says, then they, okay, they is Jesus and his disciples as they finish up the road trip. They came to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man. Hey, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Okay, <clears throat> that's a story they're in Jerusalem right after that. Second, second book, uh, end of the, this very end of the road trip, right before Jesus and his disciples enter Jerusalem. Second healing of a blind man. There's one here, there's one here. And uh, you notice that the second story is a little bit different from the first one. He doesn't focus really on the method. The first one was all about method. But in this one, Jesus doesn't walk him outside a village. Thankfully, there's no spit this time. Uh, it's not a partial healing. In fact, the method is just a word, and it's done. But what's different in this second healing is the amount of detail, again, that's prominence, it's turning at the volume knob, that we're given about Bartimaeus. Uh, this info about him is screaming at us to pay attention to this guy. We get his name. We get the meaning of his name. We know what he cried out. We know he referred to Jesus as the son of David, which was this scandalous kind of messianic reference. He wouldn't, he wouldn't shut up, basically. And he must have been pretty worked up emotionally because when people told him to go to Jesus, he said, hey, cheer up. So he must have been having a lot of anxiety here. He threw his cloak aside. And we'll come back to that one, but just think for a moment, that's kind of a big action for a blind man. He asked for a big request, and when he got it, he didn't just go back to Jericho he took his newfound sight and followed Jesus along the road, along the way. He joined the road trip, so to speak. Why so much information about Bartimaeus? Well, I'll tell you up front, and then I'll show you from the text. I believe that we're getting so much info about Bartimaeus because he is an example in the flesh of the kind of disciple that Jesus is looking to have, particularly in the way that Bartimaeus abandons his own interests and gives his wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Let's look a little bit more closely at what he does here. I just mentioned him, but let's go into detail. From the very start, he calls Jesus the son of David, Ben David. That's spicy, uh, probably in a way that we don't even realize. It's, it's like making a political statement here. Jericho is just not very far from Jerusalem, and people might have had conversations in hushed tones. Oh, do you think this Jesus guy is the Messiah? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. But this guy's shouting it out, at the top of his, his, his lungs here, that he's the Messiah, basically, the son of David. It's politically incorrect. It's scandalous how he's recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And what's more is, even when many people tried to shut him up, he wouldn't shut up. He shut it all the more. And then, uh, when Jesus calls to him, he throws his cloak aside, okay? Uh, I'm going to do a little object lesson here. I'm moving the pulpit. You know it's about to get exciting, right? Okay, I don't have a cloak. 
this is the closest thing I have to cloak. It's my beloved Awana black hoodie, okay? You too can have one if you sign up to work with Cubbies today. <laughs> Call now. So uh, those people who know me, my family members, my coworkers, probably a little grossed out because I wear this literally like all the time. Like every day, every three months or so, I'll throw it in the wash and I miss it when it's in the wash, right? But this is the equivalent of my cloak. It's, it, you know, a cloak or your favorite coat provides you warmth, uh, comfort, uh, protection, and in a way, identity. You can kind of tell people by, you know, the clothes they wear. So here's Bartimaeus with his cloak. I'll turn the Awana thing like that, right? And here he's sitting on the ground somewhere, you know. Oh, Jesus is passing me. Ah, Jesus, Ben David, have mercy on me. And they shut him up, shut him up, and they say, hey, he's calling you. He doesn't go, ah, oh, hey, would you mind holding on to this for a second while I go talk to Jesus? No, it's, Jesus, Ben David, have mercy on me. He said, hey, he's calling you. Ah, huh, huh, where? And he's, he, he leaps up and throws it to the side. And that part always gets me about Bartimaeus. Um, he threw his cloak to the side. And I don't think that's just a random detail. Um, but it's showing this, this devotion, this abandonment of his security, of his protection, of his comfort, of his identity. He casts it to the side, and I want to go to Jesus. And when he gets his sight, he doesn't just go, ah, oh, Thank you, Rabbi. And then goes back to Jericho and starts begging again. But he follows Jesus on the road, on the way. Both of those are loaded terms. Follow, way. Both terms for discipleship here. But he is this picture of abandonment of himself unto Jesus. And I'll say this. I don't have time to go into it all. Mark's gospel, he's one of about three or four examples at the end of abandonment. There's also the lady who pours out all of her perfume on Jesus' feet to wash him. There's also the, the, the widow who throws in her little coins uh, into the, uh, the, the offering box. There's this repeated punctuation of abandonment at the end of Mark's gospel, and Bartimaeus is the first one. But these are the two bookends. Two blind men healed by Jesus. First one healed gradually. Second one healed instantly, but follows Jesus with abandonment. But how do these two bookends help us make sense of what's in between? How do these stories help us to make sense of this question? How do you improve your spiritual eyesight? Wait for it. It's coming. But first, I have to kind of briefly highlight what's in between. And I'll go quickly here. Uh, but I'll say this, that the disciples are kind of like this first guy who had an initial part of vision, but it wasn't perfect vision, and it had to gradually get better here. Same way the disciples kind of start out being pretty blind, to God's ways and purposes, but eventually get a little bit more and seeing things the way that he sees them as they approach Jerusalem. The road trip is about Jesus investing in his disciples and helping them to see what the way of discipleship is all about. So I'm going to just briefly touch on these times of wasting. And you guys, we did go through these when we preached through the series. Um, but I'm going to look at uh, just three different points on the road trip when the disciples misunderstand Jesus. They didn't see things the way that Jesus was seeing them, their spiritual eyesight was impaired. Real quickly here, I'm going to go quickly. Mark 8.31, turn there or just listen. He began to teach them, so Jesus began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Okay, he's going to say this speech 
three times in this road trip. Repetition is the volume knob here. They're going to be clueless every single time. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd along with him, with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Okay, episode one here on the road trip. Jesus gives a speech, which we're going to hear a lot. I'm about to be killed and rise from the dead. Peter goes, that's not the way I see it, Jesus. Let me tell you. But Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about what God wants. You're thinking about what you want. You're blind, man. Your spiritual eyesight is all fogged up. You've got the wrong priorities here. Okay, second one, super short. Mark 9.31. 9.31. He, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. Okay, that's the whole thing. Round two, disciples still clueless, still not understanding the speech that Jesus gives. Their vision is still cloudy, but at least they kept their mouths shut. Episode three, it's a chapter later, Mark 10.32. This one's a little bit longer, um, but it's important. 10.32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. While those who followed them were afraid again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to them. We're going to Jerusalem. Okay, this is the third time he's given the speech now. Do you get it yet? Can you see? The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, teaches the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Three times in as many chapters here on this short little road trip, and they're not getting it. Then James and John, verse 35, sons of Zebedee, came to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they had been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Round three, okay? Disciples do a little bit better here, right? James uh, says, uh, or Jesus says, can you pay the price? And uh, James and John say, yes, sir, we can. So they've come a long way. <clears throat> they know there's a price. They're willing to pay that price. But there's still this lingering issue of self-interest. That's clouding up their vision. They're willing to pay the price as steep as it may go, but they want the glory on the other side. 
Jesus calls us out and says, hey, this isn't the way it's supposed to be with my disciples. And then he puts himself in the spotlight as an example, and he lays out his own mission statement, his own way of seeing things, and says, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And his hint, if you can call it a hint, it's not very subtle. He's saying, if I have this perspective, if I have this mindset, you ought to too. Don't seek things for yourself, but give yourself completely to what God the Father wants. Okay, I'll wrap it up here. These five passages, two bookends, three middle parts here, building blocks of our sermon, two bookends of blind men getting healed, three episodes in between of these disciples having cloudy spiritual eyesight to God's plans and purposes. And if you read through chapters 8 through 10, there's actually a lot more that we don't have time to go into about their lack of seeing things the way that God sees them. But let's revisit the question here of how you improve your spiritual eyesight and make a few observations. How do you improve your spiritual eyesight? First observation, well, according to Mark's take on it, our spiritual eyesight improves as we walk with Jesus. As we road trip with him, doesn't that sound fun? Love a good road trip. But just like this blind man started out with a partial but foggy view that got better, so we have these disciples who have an initial understanding. You're the Messiah, right? Of his way and his wills, his, his will and his ways, but their eyesight gradually gets sharpened as they road trip with Jesus through life. Uh, I find this immensely encouraging. Uh, Mark is uh, not shy and throwing the disciples under the bus over and over again. They look really bad in Mark's gospel. But we can relate to that, I think, because we feel like we're works in process too. We struggle too. And I think of that verse that says, you know, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God is working on us, and by its grace we'll be further along the road, seeing things his way, living things how he wants us to as we walk with him. Now, in Mark's term, uh, terms, the disciples do this by spending time with Jesus, by learning from him, uh, dialoguing with him, ministering with him on the road. And in contemporary terms, uh, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, so we road trip with Jesus, so to speak, as we read his word, as we spend time in prayer and in worship, as we dialogue, uh, bantering with other believers, and as we serve these are various means that God provides for his end. And God's spirit is with us and constantly working on us to sanctify us. I mean, we're already saved if we put our trust in Christ, but the Holy Spirit conforms us to look more and more like Christ and to see things more clearly from his perspective as we walk in step with him. So that's our first observation. It proves as we walk with him. Second observation here, Clear spiritual eyesight is marked by abandonment of ourselves unto God. So if you go through this uh, road trip portion of Mark, chapters 8 through 10, you're going to see that the consistent fog in the windshield of the disciples is self-interest. But fog can have devastating consequences. They can't just slow you down, but it can make you crash our self-interest. Peter starts out defiant of Jesus rebukes him for suggesting something like he'd go to the cross and die. But Peter's vision's cloudy. He has in mind the things of man, self-interest, not the things of God. 
And even as we see this progression in chapters 8 through 10, when the light bulb starts to go off, James and John go, hey, I know there's a cost. I'm willing to pay the cost. They still haven't shaken this self-interest. And so Jesus has to bring them down to this mission statement and remind him, in his own example, even the Son of Man didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this example of Jesus is the one that we are given to follow. Jesus is saying, you, you want to know what it's like to have clear spiritual eyesight, to know God's will, his direction, to know how you ought to live, to know what choices to make, to know how to look at other people? Then look at my example. Take up my cross. Take up your cross and follow me. So I'll put it this way. If we want to improve our spiritual eyesight, we need to focus on Jesus. And I don't just mean who he is. Yes, he's God in the flesh. But I mean, look at how he does what he does. He didn't come just to gain a life for himself. He came to lay it down. And that's the hallmark of clear spiritual vision, laying down our interests for God's. And then we get this last picture of Bartimaeus, the end of the road trip, the, uh, the ideal disciple here, shameless, loud about the right things, devoted, casts off his protection of warmth and comfort and identity, protection, that he can gain Jesus. He knows who Jesus is, the son of David, the Messiah. But beyond that, he understands that coming to Jesus is more than just receiving a blessing and walking on his merry way back to Jericho to live the former life he had before. No, he sees clearly enough to know that abandoning himself unto God is the right and complete response. Let me pray. Lord, I take great encouragement from the fact we, we mess up all the time. We're works in progress, but you uh, don't cast us aside. Uh, you uh, refurb us. Uh, thank you. Thank you that uh, you let us road trip with you through life and that you use us along the way. But Lord, we know we all have uh, shortness of vision, shortness of seeing uh, others or situations or choices or goals uh, with a lot of foggy self-interest in the way and other things probably too. Clear our vision, but help us to lean into the methods that you've given us to wipe the windshield clean uh, by spending time in your word and dialoguing with others and help us to walk in obedience uh, so that we can honor you more and live well for you. In Jesus' name, amen.